So today we are doing a Q&A Sunday, and this is something that we try to do on a regular basis. Uh, we haven't actually done one since April last year because of all the things that have been going on around the place, uh, but we try to do it on a regular basis because we feel like being able to tackle the questions that you've got about faith, about Jesus, about the Bible, about church life, about what it means to follow Jesus is something that's really, really important. And part of the reason for that is that in a healthy family, you're allowed to ask lots of questions. You're allowed to ask the why questions and the how questions and how come things are like this and why is this something that's important to us. Those are a safe place for you to be able to ask those questions. And so in a healthy spiritual family, we want to be able to do the same thing. Because as we continue to follow Jesus, we recognise that we have lots and lots of questions. That if we're reading our Bibles on a regular basis, if we're thinking about what it means to follow Jesus authentically, there should be lots of stuff that comes up for us. I know it does for me. It's like, well, how does this work? And how does this fit together? And what does this actually mean? And so we want to create a safe space to be able to do that. But it's also really important because, and we're going to see this today, a lot of the questions that we have don't necessarily have good or clear answers. And so sometimes that can shake us a little bit where it's like, oh, well, if the answer to that isn't clear, does that mean everything's in jeopardy? And what we try to do with our Q&A Sundays is to say, well, we don't necessarily know the answer to this, but we do know these things. And so we can always come back to the basics of what it means to follow Jesus and to have confidence in that as we're able to move forward. So we intentionally don't ask you to put your names to your questions. We want to do this anonymously. Um, But I do want to say, if you are not satisfied with the answer to the question, if you ask one of the questions today, uh, feel free to follow up with me and say, I'm not sure that I agree with that or I need more information. That's totally fine as well. So we're going to jump into our first question, uh, which is this. Was Jesus born on the 25th of December? And the answer to this is, we don't know. Next question. No, no. (laughs) We will dig in a little bit more than that. So we don't actually know whether Jesus was born on the 25th of December or not. The Bible doesn't say anything about the date that Jesus was born. It doesn't even say anything about the season in which Jesus was born at all. And interestingly, there's no record of the early church focusing on Jesus' birth either. So when we look through the book of Acts, there's no focus on them having Christmas celebrations or even recognising Jesus' birth. And it's not actually until the 4th century that the church started to celebrate Jesus' birth and pick the date of December the 25th. And so there are all these conspiracy theories that then float around because the church chose this arbitrary date for Jesus' birth. In a number of uh, cultures, there were festivals that celebrated the birth of the sun, sun, S-U-N, and so generally that would happen on or around December the 25th, which is the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere. So that's a really significant day because, having lived in the Northern Hemisphere, we know what this is like, that the grind into winter is awful. And so the winter solstice, which is the point when the days start to get longer, is 100% a day to be able to celebrate. And so a lot of cultures have celebrated the winter solstice for a very, very long time. The Romans also had this festival that was called the birth of the unconquered sun, again, S-U-N. And so there's this conspiracy that says, well, the early church just took all of those other festivals, dumped Jesus' birthday on it so that they could convert people across to Christianity. And so therefore, this is another reason why we can't necessarily believe in this whole Jesus business. 
But it actually makes a lot of sense that they would have chosen that date if it was an existing festival because the early church was not big and certainly was not influential. And so for them to stick their hand up and say, "Uh, we would like to uh, start celebrating a day when Jesus was born and so we're going to have a festival, effectively a public holiday, and we would like to pick uh, that date, just wouldn't have been realistic. So it makes a lot more sense for them to pick an existing festival, an existing public holiday, and be able to say, well, we're going to just kind of use that as an opportunity not to focus on those pagan things, but to be able to instead focus on Jesus' birth. But there's another school of thought that actually says the early church did everything it could to stay away from pagan festivals, and so it's just a massive coincidence that it ended up being on the same date. And the reason why December 25th was chosen was because back then they didn't really celebrate birthdays like we do. In fact, there's kind of no real records about births. And so they had this understanding that you died on the same day that you were conceived. That's just what they believed, was that your death marked the day when you were conceived. And so we know the date when Jesus died because we know that was attached to the Passover festival and we can kind of trace the dates back that way. So the early church did the maths and said, well, if Jesus died on March the 25th and therefore he was conceived on March the 25th, nine months later is December the 25th. And so that's the reason that they chose the date for Jesus' birth. The reality is, this is one of those questions where we say, does it actually matter whether it is Jesus' actual birth or not? It could have been. We don't know that for sure. But does it actually matter? And the answer for us would be to say, well, not really. It is the date that was chosen by the church. And so now we embrace it and we say, isn't that awesome that we've got a day where we can celebrate everything about what it means that Jesus came in human form to become one of us and to start his life and his ministry leading to his death and his resurrection? And so we celebrate it because of that. So I hope that's helpful in terms of that first question. We had a second Christmas-related question, which was this. The Bible says that Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. How was this possible if she had never been with a man? So this is a very, very spicy question for us to dig into on a Sunday morning. So we'll look at the two passages that talk about what's going on here. So one from Luke and one from Matthew. So the first one is from Luke because that's what happened to Mary. This is when the angel appeared to Mary and the angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He'll be very great and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he'll reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. We then also have this record from Matthew in terms of Joseph's experience of what happened here. So Matthew 1 verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and didn't want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. So we'll start by this question about was Mary a virgin or wasn't she? Because it is something that's very, very complicated. And when we start to dig into it and think about how this all could have happened, it's relatively easy for us to say, well, let's just put that one in the too hard basket and not talk about it too much or not even think about it. And some streams of the church have done exactly that and said, well, we're not going to worry about that side of things. It's not that important. So we'll push it aside. Part of the reason for that is because, again, conspiracy theorists would say this is the only time that this is mentioned in the whole New Testament. Nobody else talks about it. Nobody else focuses on this idea of Mary being a virgin. So it must have been something that they just made up because everyone everyone else was like, we're not touching that and we're not going to talk about it. But in fact, we would say the opposite is probably true. The fact that nobody feels the need to circle back around to this that nobody in the rest of the Gospels, the biographies about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, no one in Acts and no one, particularly Paul, in the early church, in the early leaders of the church, felt like they needed to come back to this and justified or talked about it shows us that it was probably just accepted by the majority of people. Nobody needed to push back against it and say, well, actually, we believe it for these reasons because it was just what everybody believed. But if we untangle this and think a bit more about it, we would say if you had a hidden agenda or if you were making this up for a specific reason, you would absolutely want to come back to it later, wouldn't you? So if, again, the church had this hidden motivation about why they wanted to say that Mary was a virgin, surely they would have returned back to it. Someone would have written more about it and said, this is why this is really, really important. Nobody did. Nobody talked about it anymore at all, which again makes us assume that everyone just accepted it and embraced it. We also want to recognise that if for some reason the church was trying to cover something up, so this is the other conspiracy theory, Jesus was born illegitimately and therefore this was all a big cover-up by the church. If you were going to cover up that Jesus was born illegitimately, you probably wouldn't jump from Jesus was born illegitimately to he didn't have an earthly father you would probably come up with some other story that was a little bit more believable and a little bit easier to grasp rather than the virgin birth. And so this is one of a number of different things, and we've talked about this often, where we can recognise that there are these little details that are there, particularly through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that just give us a real sense of confidence that we can believe what's actually there because you wouldn't make this stuff up for no reason whatsoever. But they're these little details that are thrown in there that you would expect people to say if they were just telling you exactly what had happened. And in particular, the fact that Luke, who we know, as Maureen said last week, was a doctor, we know that Luke would have done his research. He would have done the work to be able to dig into all of this stuff and he wouldn't have written that Mary was a virgin if he didn't genuinely believe it. So we can take a lot of confidence in it. How did it happen? This, again, is one of those questions where we say, we don't really know. All we're told is that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon Mary and she would conceive because of that. And we talked last year, we did a series where we talked about the Holy Spirit and we said the Holy Spirit is very mysterious in terms of how it works. We often can't see exactly the way that the Holy Spirit works, but we can always see the results of what the Holy Spirit does. But as I was thinking about this through this week, 
It's thinking about the reality of all of the other things that we believe about God's power. That God, we believe, is the one who created the whole universe. God's the one who spun stars out into space. God's the one who created this planet that we live on. God's the one who created all the diversity of life that we get to see all around us. God's the one who created humanity and breathed life into us. God's the one who was able to raise people from the dead. God's the one who was able to take ordinary, very ordinary people and use them to do absolutely amazing, extraordinary things that we see throughout Scripture. So if that's all true, is it so hard to believe that God could create life out of nothing? And in reality, we know that God wasn't working with nothing. He had quite a bit to work with in terms of what Mary already had going on. And so can we believe that God was able to plant life inside of Mary? Is that so hard for us to believe given everything else that we believe about God? So I hope that's helpful. Again, if that was your question and you'd like to unpack it further, happy to chat more about it. All right, next question. This one was a real curveball for us. When Jesus was in Cornwall, what activities did Jesus perform? Yes, you read that right. When Jesus was in Cornwall, what activities did Jesus perform? Now, we'll be honest, we did do a little bit of digging with this one because we were like, uh, what? <laughs> and what we discovered is that there is a documentary that's floating around and there's also some books that have been written, there is some poetry, there are some songs that have been written that talk about Jesus going to Cornwall while he was a teenager or a young adult going on a bit of a road trip, a bit of a gap year for him uh, as he was exploring who he was. The way that the story goes is that there was this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, not to be confused with Joseph, Jesus's father, but Joseph of Arimathea, who's the one whose tomb Jesus is laid in after he dies on the cross. The story says that Joseph of Arimathea was actually Jesus's uncle. And so Jesus, with his uncle, went on a road trip and they went and they spent some time in Cornwall. So that's the way that the story goes. Is it true? We don't know. We actually know very little whatsoever about what happened for Jesus from the time that he was a baby all the way until he was 30 when his earthly ministry started. The only snapshot we've got is when Jesus was 12. Uh, His family went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. They spent some time there. They then left. His family left, thought Jesus was hanging out with some other family friends. They looked around, where's Jesus? Don't know. And then had to go all the way back to Jerusalem. And they found Jesus sitting in the temple, talking to the religious leaders and blowing them away with the questions he was asking and the things that he was saying. And then we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and all the people. That's literally the only statement that we've got about what Jesus' life was like from when he was 12 until he was 30. So... What was going on there? Was Jesus learning the ropes of what it meant to be a carpenter from his father, Joseph? Did he go on a road trip? Did he go on a boat trip over to Cornwall? We don't know. I'm always fascinated to think about whether Jesus knew everything about who he was all at once. So as he started to become more and more aware of just everything, did he understand everything about who he was all at once? Or was it something that he just gradually grew into? We don't know that either. So why am I fascinated with the Superman movies? I love Superman. Part of it is there's a lot of crossover between Superman and Jesus. But a lot of the Superman movies that tell the origin story of Superman about how he came to Earth as a little baby from an alien planet and then was adopted by earthly parents often have these scenes that show Superman discovering his powers 
and wrestling with what it means, that he's got these powers and that he's special and there's something different about him, and how does he fit into the society around him? And I love watching them because it always makes me wonder, is that what Jesus' experience was like as well? Or did he just get it straight away? Again, we don't know the answer to all of that. So what do we do? Well, we come back to what we do know. And what we do know is that we have more than enough in what we do understand about Jesus' life and teaching in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John for us to focus on. And it's one of those times where it's interesting to kind of think about all of that. But I then come back to what we do have and say, there's more than enough for me to reflect on and ponder and put into practice in terms of what I do know about Jesus, that if there was a reason for us to know more, God would have given us more. He didn't. So I come back to what we do have and jump into that from there. So hope that's helpful for you if that was your question. The last question that we're going to look at today for the sake of time is this one. Churches of Christ traditionally held a 7pm Sunday gospel service with an altar call. With declining numbers these days, how are people becoming Christians? So background context to this is that lots and lots of churches of Christ churches, and many of you would have experienced this, particularly in the 50s, 60s and 70s, had these gospel services that happened on a Sunday night. We had them here at Brooklyn Park and lots of places did. It was an opportunity for people to be able to come and to be able to hear the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, presented in a very, very clear way with an opportunity for people to then respond to that and to say, well, is that something that you want to accept? Do you want to follow Jesus and make a commitment to that right here, right now? It came on the backs of the Billy Graham Crusades and a lot of other things that were happening around us in church world where there was this heightened sense of calling people to make a decision to follow Jesus and to move forward. And there's lots of really good things that came out of that and some of you may have made a decision to follow Jesus because of that and it was a great opportunity to be able to clearly present the message of Jesus and to give people an opportunity to respond. The challenge is that as time went on, a couple of things developed and churches started to realise this. One is that we recognise that there are ways of us making it more likely for someone to be able to make a decision. So we can use things like music and emotive language that can then kind of push people into making decisions. And again, some of you may have experienced this too. There was a lot of language around fear and guilt that was often used to again try and get people to cross the line. Do you know where you're going to go if you're hit by a bus on your way home tonight? Was a line that was often used by people. And so some churches started to push back against that and to say, well, we don't actually feel that comfortable about that. But we also recognised that this idea of following Jesus is not just about this one-time decision that we make. Making a decision to follow Jesus is actually a commitment to this thing that we call discipleship, which is about taking our next steps in our walk with Jesus for the rest of of our lives. And it's helpful to think about this in the context of apprenticeship. We often talk about discipleship as being apprenticeship, being apprenticed to Jesus. When you get an apprenticeship, it's not getting the job that's the key thing. You don't say, I got this job now, so that's the end of it, which is a little bit of what some churches were doing in terms of, well, you've made a decision to follow Jesus, great, that's all you need to worry about. With an apprenticeship, when you get the job, you recognise that's actually the beginning. That's the start. And now all of the work begins. The opportunity to be able to put into practice what you're learning, to learn from other people and to learn as you go and to recognise you'll probably spend the rest of your life continuing to hone your craft. That's what we understand discipleship looks like. It's not this one-time decision that we make and then we're set. 
Discipleship is entering into this process of being apprenticed by Jesus for the rest of our lives and taking our next steps in that. So that was another reason why churches said, we're not feeling as comfortable about these gospel services, so we're probably going to stop doing them. So we come back to the question then, why are numbers declining in churches? Is it related to this is kind of the question behind the question here that we can dig into. And we would recognise that uh, there are lots and lots of reasons why churches have declined, particularly through the last 50 years. And it's very, very complex. Part of us doing the uh, National Church Life Survey is so that we can get some insights into some of what's happening there and some of the trends that are going on. But we have to name that there are lots of reasons why people have stepped away from the church. We know that there are some very big reasons in terms of particularly the hurt that people experienced in churches. The biggest one, of course, is the Royal Commission into Child Abuse in the Church, the recognition that there was really bad things that happened to a lot of people. But we also know, and many of us probably experienced that, hurt from church leaders or from people within churches that wasn't necessarily abuse but caused significant pain. And lots of people walked away from the church because of that. A lot of people walked away from the church because of perceived hypocrisy. Well, you say one thing, but you do something completely different, and so I can't stand that, and so I'm going to walk away from it. Our culture became more and more suspicious about big organisations in general, and so the church got lumped in with that. There's a recognition that there's just generational change that's happened in terms of parents who weren't brought up in the church whatsoever, who are now having kids who have no context for church at all which is the first time that that's been the case in a very long time. We also have to challenge ourselves about the fact that in lots of streams of the church, we became irrelevant in lots of different places. We held on to things that meant that people felt like there was nothing there for them. Now, it's important to name that this doesn't mean that people have stopped searching. People are searching for answers probably more than they ever have, maybe because they're less involved in churches. But we have to own, as churches that we contributed to some of the decisions that made people walk away from the church. Now, we had a bit of a conversation about this Monday night at our board meeting when we are doing some strategic planning that we can also talk about things like sport on Sundays, which is something that often comes up. Oh, well, because people started playing sport on Sundays, they walked away from the church. There's a question there about the chicken and the egg. Which came first? Did people start playing sport on Sundays because it was offered? Or did sport start being offered on Sundays because people were looking for something else to do and were available on Sundays. Same thing in terms of other things that people do on Sundays. Which came first? And it's a good question for us to wrestle with. It's probably not clear one way or the other. But we can't just say because that happened, that's why everyone walked away. They wouldn't have walked away if they felt like church was really, really important to them. So lots of reasons why people, why the church has shrunk and why numbers have declined. And so in the context of that, as we come back to the question, with numbers declining and with the absence of these gospel services and opportunities for people to respond, how are people becoming Christians these days? And once again, the NCLS will be really helpful for us because it will dig into some of that. What have people's experiences been and the decisions that they've made about becoming Christians? But the research that has been done says very clearly that most people these days become Christians or explore Christianity because they are able to have conversations with someone that they trust. It's primarily through relationships now that people will explore faith. The chances of people just kind of wandering in on a Sunday have lessened away significantly. But we know it does still happen a little bit. 
most people would say, the research again holds this up, that if someone that they knew and trusted invited them into a conversation about spiritual things or even invited them to church, over 50% of people would say, yes, I would be interested in talking about that or exploring what that looks like. Which may be surprising to us because we kind of think everyone around us is very hostile to us. But in actual fact, lots of people are searching and begging to find out the answers to questions about life and meaning and purpose. And if there's someone that they trust, then they're happy to have those conversations. So that's a challenge for us as we wrap up our message today. to be able to say that there are lots of opportunities for us to continue to explore the questions that the people around us have. But are we willing to be courageous enough to talk about why Jesus matters to us? Are we willing to be courageous enough to talk about why being a part of a church family is something that's still really important to us? Because our friends, our neighbours, the people we work with, the people that are in our extended families, a lot of them are searching for someone to be able to talk about that with. And we have the privilege of being able to walk with them as they then explore what those steps of discipleship may look like for them. So again, hope that that's been helpful for you. Normally we would tackle another couple of questions. Uh, If your question wasn't answered today, don't worry, we have kept it and we will come back and do some more questions probably in April. Um, But if you had a burning question that didn't get answered today, please feel free to come and have a chat with me. So I'm going to pray and uh, then we're going to transition across to communion where we'll be reminded again about what is the core in the midst of all of our questions. What is the core of what we believe? Ultimately, it's about Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death and his resurrection, and so we can step with confidence into what he's got for us. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we are a part of a healthy spiritual family where it's okay for us to ask questions. We know that the absence of being able to explore things and ask questions is very, very dangerous, and that there are some significantly bad things that have happened in different streams of the church that have turned into cults and uh, other cultural things that have happened when people aren't allowed to ask questions. And so we're grateful that this is a safe place for us to wrestle with those things, not just on Q&A Sundays, but as we spend time with each other in the groups that we're a part of, in the relationships that we've got, that we can talk about the things that we're wondering about, the questions that we've got. We also thank you that even though a lot of the time when we ask some of the questions, we dig into them and say, well, we don't actually have a clear answer to that. There's so much that we do know. And all of that is grounded in who you are, Jesus, which is why we talk about so often being a Jesus-centred church. Because ultimately we want to come back to you to remind ourselves of who you are, to remind ourselves of the things that you have revealed to us and to put our trust in you as we continue to take our steps forward, as we continue to explore the different things that we're wondering about, and as we continue to look for opportunities to be able to share about why you matter to us with the people around us. So I pray that today has been helpful to be able to answer some of the questions that we've got, but that you would continue to give us confidence in who you are as we move forward individually and together as a church family. In your name we pray. Amen.